as we venture into the holiday season, as we get into Thanksgiving and Christmas and we begin to celebrate, maybe we're gonna be doing some traveling or maybe people will be traveling to you. Maybe there will be some interactions that you're really, really excited for. Or maybe there's interactions that you're already thinking how to avoid them. How do I get away from my family? How can I make sure that I can get my, my uh, screen all set so that I can watch what I need to watch so I don't have to have that same conversation with Uncle Hal about his colon surgery that he keeps reminding me about? Like, how, how do I navigate family stuff and things? And, and, and here's the deal. A lot of that tension that we can feel with family and the holidays can come with um, emotions gone wild, emotions gone out of control, feelings, emotions, experiences. And the truth is this, um, any emotion that's out of control, truly, out of control emotions never produce God-honoring results in your life. Any emotion that gets haywire or any emotion that gets out of control will never produce God-honoring results in your life. We're gonna jump into some of that today and we're gonna be focusing on a deep emotion that goes haywire, an, an emotion that we feel that is way more than a feeling, it's almost like, um, like a shadowing, like a, like a covering, um, like a hiding. We're gonna be really diving into this idea of shame, where it comes from, how we navigate it, uh, how it affects us, and what God wants to do with that out of control, deep, real emotion that some of you are experiencing now and you may not even know it because it's running like an iOS. It's an internal operating system that it, it actually filters every answer that you might give to a certain particular situation. It causes you to do things or run away from things. It is something that we can wear that all of us, we see ourselves through it. As a matter of fact, as we begin to dive in, let's just take your notes. If you're taking notes on the app or there in the, in the worship guide at one of our locations, let's jump in and let's talk about the looking glass self. In the early 20th century, uh, the socio sociologist Charles Cooley uh, he identified these three statements about the looking glass self, kind of the mirror self. And, and here, are the, here are the three statements that he basically unpacked for, for, for uh, a social experiment. Here they were. He says, I am not who I think I am. Some of us are not who we think we are. To the good or to the bad or to the ugly, you are not just who you think you are. Who do you think you are? <laughs> well, you don't really know. The second one is this, I'm not who you think I am because there are things that you might think about me or things that you've assumed about me or things that you've seen in me and you've made a conclusion, you put two and two together and, and I may actually not be who you think I am and I am not who I think I am. Well, we were in trouble, aren't we? It gets worse. It gets worse. Really, the truest kind of where most of us tend to live in this broken world that needs a pure Jesus is we really live in this third one, and it's this. I am who I think you think I am. I am who, you, who I think you think I am. So if I think you think I'm not enough, I'm going to either prove you right or I'm going to prove you wrong. If I think you think that I am only doing this or that because of this, then I'm gonna prove you right or I'm gonna prove you wrong. 
And all of a sudden, so much of my energy and my focus becomes based on what you think I am and what I think you think I am versus who God says I am. But it's a reality that isn't something that non-Christians deal with. It is what humanity deals with. Let's talk about that looking glass self for a minute. You can take some of these notes. The truth is that everyone in my life functions as a mirror. I can see myself in my children. And there are times I love what I see. And then there are times where Janet and I will get in the car dropping off our daughter 15 hours away. And knowing that like I see things in her and some insecurities in her that I see in myself. I see them. It's a reflection. Oh, were we ready to drop her off? Was she ready? We weren't ready. We know that. Is she ready? Was she ready? And everyone becomes a mirror. And, and, and we see ourselves and we see them. Furthermore, no one is a perfect reflection of who you are or who they are. Because you can have interactions with people and you're seeing who they are and you're seeing who you are, but it's not a perfect reflection. There's distortion there. There's emotions and feelings. There's uh, what we have is a failure to communicate. We have static in these relationships that, that you can look in a mirror. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but have you ever been like into a fun house at a, at, at a circus or something? And you can go through the, through the house of mirrors and everything's distorted and, and, and you, you've got, you know, a, a head the size of a pencil and you got hips the size of a school bus. And, and uh, some of you are like, that's how I feel every day and it's not in the fun house, okay? Um, your, your, your view can be distorted on how you see yourself based on how other people see you and what you see in them and, and all of this. And, and, and no one is a perfect reflection of who you are or who they are, all right? And this is where shame begins to live. Now, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give you a little bit of kind of grid work, some foundation, then we're gonna get into the antidote. We're gonna get into the cure. We're gonna get into Jesus and how Jesus handles shame and how Jesus operates and wants to operate with you, an imperfect person who is still deeply, unbelievably loved by him. An archbishop was recently asked, um, uh, he is the Archbishop of Canterbury, Joseph Welby, and he, and he was asked this question. Uh, Bishop, what do you believe is the most difficult thing that Christians face these days? What do you think is the most difficult thing Christians face these days? And without pausing, he said, I believe every single Christian struggles with this more than anything else that they can't quite truly believe they are deeply loved by God. That of all of our struggles, all of our hangups and habits and holdups, that most Christians sometimes struggle, can struggle, and will struggle, that they are just deeply, truly loved by God, because there's so much things we try to do and we try to don't to earn that love, and he loves you, he loves you. 
Shame shows up and it's kind of this whole family of emotions that we, we deal with. And th- that shame for some of us can be strong feelings or it can be weak feelings and it can produce shame. The shame is a byproduct of these family of emotions kind of intensified. Uh, it could be something that's brief in your life or something that's enduring. It can show up for a little bit and disappear, it can come back, it can be something that every day, it's in the, you're, you're living in that wheelhouse that's producing shame. It's ideas like this, so you can have an emotion where, man, I feel bad about something, something happened to me, or I did something, I feel bad about it. As it goes through the, the, the reality of shame, and it, and it deepens, and it becomes a dark piece, it is, I am something bad. Not just that I did something bad, I am something bad. Or I go through a moment where I feel embarrassed, Anybody ever embarrassed yourself in public? Like I feel embarrassed, but then if, if we begin to take that from a moment that's an emotion and it becomes a deep kind of um, a hindering emotion, it's like I am an embarrassment. And so then I begin to operate of who I think you think I am, and I think you think I'm an embarrassment, so now I'm going to operate in what I believe you think I am, all right? Let me give you a real life example for myself. And this isn't a, an emotion, this is a fact. I'm short. I'm short. I don't think anybody means anything negative about this. Okay, I don't think anybody thinks anything negative about this. But whenever I meet people uh, that like from Nacogdoches or Duncan or Dieball that 99.9% of the time uh, you're, you're watching a video of me and right now I'm like seven and a half foot tall. <laughs> you're welcome. Like... One of the very first things that they will say from Nacogdoches to Duncan and Dybald, they'll say, man, you're shorter in person. And I don't take that as a slight, I don't take that as, as a negative, um, but I can, but I could, I could. Because it's, it's so amazing how things that you grow up with, I am short is a reality, but I didn't just, I wasn't just short growing up, I felt really small growing up growth hormone deficiency. Uh, my brother was four years younger than I was, and I was wearing hand-me-ups. He was handing up his clothes to me. And, and, and with me feeling short, or am short, it became more of a reality to more of a feeling. I felt less. So that am short became to be I am insignificant. Uh, it's just a height. It's just inches on a, on a ruler. And yet, I'm insignificant. I'm not noticed. I'm unnoticed. Nobody's going to want to be my friend. Nobody's going to want to marry me. Because I'm so short. And I'm not enough. And I'll never be enough. And so shame, this whole idea of, of shame, here's what it tends to produce. In fact, write it down if you're taking notes. Shame is my attempt then to hide who I think I really am. So if I think you think I'm insignificant, my shame is gonna cause me to want to hide that from you. So what am I gonna do? I'm gonna emotionally try and walk on my tiptoes as much as I possibly can. I'm I'm gonna try and respond to you in a way that you won't see me for who I think you think I am but who I'm trying to portray through my twisted emotions because I'm trying to hide who I think I really am. So let's take this a little further. We're gonna tease this out 
and then the antidote is coming. So if shame is my attempt to hide who I think I am, what happens is shame becomes this, um, this power. There's, there's this power that works within you and around you. And what it becomes is it becomes quicksand or jet fuel to you. Your shame becomes quicksand or jet fuel. Let me give you my personal example. Uh, you know, I'm short, but I, it's not about being a stature. It's I am insignificant. Now, if I take an I am insignificant, that can become quicksand or jet fuel when I, when I shroud it in shame. So in quicksand, I'm insignificant. I'm not going to risk anything. I'm never going to step up. I'm never going to hold a microphone and speak to somebody. I'm never, I don't have anything to say. Why would anybody even want to hear what I have to say? Quicksand pushes me down, holds me down, keeps, suffocates my God-given potential. But for me, my own shame that I have to give to Jesus, who's already taken it, it really is more jet fuel for me. So I'm, I'm gonna prove that I can, I, you can pick me. Don't pick me last on the kickball team. I'm gonna run fast. You know what? I've got something to say. I'm gonna be funny. I may not be the tallest and most handsome in the darkest. I just told Janet, look, you didn't get tall, dark, and handsome. But here's the deal. On our wedding night, I just turned off the lights and I stepped up on a stool. Problem solved. <laughs> but what can happen is that becomes jet fuel. So I'm going to prove you wrong. And so I do want to have something to say. But, but then what can happen is even being a pastor. This is just this has got to be out of just being a follower of Jesus. Otherwise, you know what normal humans that sometimes become pastors do too? They let shame lead their game. So it, it becomes, it's a challenge that I have to face in myself. That I have to sacrifice daily. That, I'm not, that I can't be concerned whether you think I'm significant or not, whether I preach this message or not. But that God be given glory, that God be lifted up, that the word of Christ be preached and let him do the difference. I can't make that difference. He can make that difference. And you can see, though, how anybody, pastor, lawyer, teacher, police officer, fireman, a mom or a dad, a son or a daughter, quicksand or jet fuel, we can deal with shame. Now, there are some shame triggers that we have. Triggers, you know, you pull the trigger and something, there's a response to the trigger. Here are some triggers that cause shame. I'll give you four of them. First one's this, unwanted exclusion. We all want a place to belong, you know? Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you just wanna go. Where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. I mean, you want to be where the people always know your name. Da 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 da. And so, like, unwanted exclusion. If I ever felt left out, not 
picked, pushed away, put on the sidelines, uh, overlooked. What can that, it can produce, little, small, or massive, it can produce that feeling of wanting to hide and have quicksand or jet fuel to respond to who I think you think I am and unwanted exclusions. The next one is this, unwanted exposure. It's unwanted attention drawn to something in your life. Growing up short, walking into a room, there's no, there's no hiding it. You're the short one. Why are you so short? You're how old? I had to deal with it. Being 14 years old and the, the server, or the waitress or whatever you call them, the hostess saying, do you need a kid's meal or do you need a kid's menu? And I'm 14 flipping years old, <laughs> bringing me a cup with the lid on it, dear God in heaven. <laughs> oh, we gonna have words, Julie. <laughs> bringing me a to-go cup with a lid. As little and insignificant as that is, I can remember those moments. How many times have I eaten? And I can remember that. Listen, I remember this a few years ago. My dad is one of the most godly men I've known in my life. He is a man of God. He loves Jesus. If you've been new to the church, you've not heard him or been around him. Like he is, he's just an amazing man. I love him. He's my friend now. He was an awesome parent. You know why he wasn't? Because he wasn't my friend. He was my parent. But now he's my best friend. Just a, one of my absolute, besides Janet, one of my absolute best friends. We were at Taco Bell of all godly places. <laughs> and he ordered a Nacho Bell Grande with extra cheese. When the Nacho Bell Grande, when the order was up and he pulled the, the tray, it, he saw his Nacho Bell Grande and it didn't have extra cheese. And my dad, kindest, closest to Jesus person I know, simply says, hey, I have... I, I just wanted a little extra cheese. I'm not, I don't think you guys gave it. And the woman uh, went over to her manager and said, he wants extra cheese. Now, if this seems so insignificant, but the manager turns around and says, sir, if you want extra cheese, you're gonna have to pay for it. And my dad, grown adult, me, grown adult, he says, mm. he takes his stuff, we sit down at the, at the table, and he goes, why why would she yell that in front of everybody? And as we unpacked that, he said, that was so embarrassing because I probably, everybody's looking at me anyway, like you don't need any extra cheese. <laughs> but how insignificant of a moment that now he even feels body shamed because of a very simple Taco Bell encounter. I'm, I'm just saying to you, don't, don't just kinda scrape it under the rug. There are little things and big things. Little Nacho Belgrande things and, that are not so much Belgrande. They're Paquito Belgrande, they're pa Nacho Pelquito, whatever, you know, sorry. <laughs> but they're big for you. They're a big deal to you. I know it, I've been there, I am there. 
And we can kind of tough it up and be all good all East Texas and say, nah, we're never going to sticks and stones or break my bones. But words are so incredibly dangerous. So incredibly dangerous. Unwanted exposure. My dad was exposed for the fatty that he was, he felt. Just because he wanted extra cheese on a Bel Grande. Unmet expectation. Where you had a goal and you missed it. I got into a bicycle wreck a few, a couple months ago and threw me off my whole training. Since January, I've been training for an Ironman that I was going to do three weeks ago and uh, had a bicycle wreck on mile 57 one morning, fell off, uh, and here's what's crazy about it. I'm in, a, I'm in a neighborhood, I'm going about between 18 and 20 miles an hour, hit a crack, bust my tire, tire flips, I, I fall over the front of the, the bike and I'm sliding, my, my bright lights are flying everywhere. It's, it's just after dawn, so sun isn't quite shining, but you can see everything. Lights are everywhere, bike is, is, is destroyed. I'm sliding across the, the, the pavement, major, uh, what is it called, hematoma, right here. My shoulder still isn't, it wasn't broken, but I know I've torn something that I've gotta get addressed. And, and do you know what was crazy in that moment? I landed and I obviously felt hurt. I also looked up to see if anybody saw. It's like walking into you know, a glass door in the mall. I mean, you, you, you big old knot on your forehead, but you're, you're, the first thing you're thinking is, did anybody see me do that? That's the workings of shame. That's the workings. That I'm not cared about my pain that I'm feeling, I'm cared about, the pain. I'm cared about how you think what you're thinking about me right now. And so if I ever told anybody that I had that affair, if I ever told anybody that was struggling with that addiction, if I ever told anybody that it was just a simple hernia surgery and now I'm addicted to the painkillers and I can't ever get past it, and it was just a glass of wine and now it is a full-blown addiction and nobody would ever know, nobody could ever understand and even you might hide it from yourself living in denial, but it's the shame that you're trying, you're hiding stuff. And it's just, it was just one little thing that becomes this big old thing. And you didn't meet your expectations. I should have been stronger than this. I should have been better than this. And, and yet you hide it. Ultimately, one of the biggest ones is unreturned love. And how many people wish they just had a dad or just had a mom that would just accept them for who they are? Child star in Disney wrote a book entitled, I'm Glad My Mom Is Dead. You gotta read the book to understand it. But one of the co-stars of the Disney show, iCarly, she writes about how her mom and her own addictions um, violated her, molested her, um, had certain expectations of how she must look and how she, what she must weigh every time she sat on the scale because she didn't accomplish her dreams so by God, her daughter was gonna accomplish her dreams. It's a twisted, non-Christian approach to life, but it's shame, nonetheless, that this child star dealt with, never feeling like they were enough, never, not quite like she could ever earn the love of her mom, no matter what the weight scale said, no matter what the agent said, no matter what the contract was, and it's unreturned love.
It can be as small as, I don't know, we'll call her Trisha Tatum, because that's her name. In fourth grade, at Paola Assembly of God in Paola, Kansas, I had a crush on Trisha. Oh, Trisha. Ha! Smart. I mean, she knew like math. <laughs> so cool. She was rich. She had like the, the 64 count Crayolas with the, with the eraser, or with the, like the sharpener. You know she's rich if you got a 64 count Crayola thing. I tell my mom and dad, I'm in love with Trisha. They're like, oh, you are? I said, yes. I want to ask her to be my girlfriend. I'm going to write her a letter. Will you go out with me? Yes, no, maybe. But I need something. My mom pulls out like a little Claire's necklace says, give her this. And I go to the door because she was in what we called missionettes. It was girls' discipleship in the time. And I was in rural rangers, which is like Boy Scouts at the time. I didn't know if I knew Jesus or not, but I could tie a square knot, bless God. And uh, <laughs> that came in handy because Trisha totally denied me and gave me the, 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 the necklace back and it was all jumbled up. I had to figure out how to take that square knot out, you know. <laughs> um, that unreturned love, man, dealt with me even as a young kiddo. So it kind of cautioned me to ask, ca cautioned me like, what will they think? I don't want to get rejected. Quicksand or jet fuel, okay? Those are some triggers. Here's some shame scripts. And scripts are like soundtracks. It's like whatever is playing on Repeat, write, write it down. Um, it's the distorted stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. You aren't enough. You better try harder. You better do this. You better not. You, you better not say it. You better say it. You bet, don't you let anybody walk over you. You better get the last word in edgewise. You better do whatever they say because they won't love you if you don't. It's the distorted stories we tell ourselves that are on repeat. And you walk into life and and it plays like a soundtrack. It is your life soundtrack, these scripts that come up because of these shame stories that we're telling ourselves. It's the negative review on repeat. Last time I checked, we had like 347 reviews on Timber Creek Church. Um, more than 90% five stars, two of them one stars. Can you guess which ones did I lay in bed thinking about. Of course you know, because you do the same. You do the same. It's like negative reviews on repeat in our life. Scripture, friends, the word of God, and the word of God is not just a document. The word of God is living, breathing. The word of God is flesh. The word of God is the embodiment, is embodied by the son of God. Jesus, the fulfillment of all this scripture. He became flesh, lived among us, understood emotions, understood shame. Write it down. Scripture is the script cure. The script that you're, you're walking in, the script that you're reading, the, the, the part you're playing because of the script you are reading. Scripture is the script cure. For all the reflection, good, bad, or ugly, my wife loves a very specific mirror in Lufkin. It's downtown. It's in the basement of a building in a restaurant called Manhattan's. And it's the mirror in the bathroom. And if you're a lady and you've been to that bathroom, you probably know what she's talking about. 
because she says, I just look so skinny in that mirror. I love it. I mean, last time we were there, she's like trying to steal it. No, she wasn't. She wasn't. I said, baby, you don't, you don't need a mirror for somebody to tell you you're looking good. <laughs> Moving on. But that mirror, even the book of James, the half-brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James, he says it like this. Hey, don't just listen to God's word. You gotta do what it says. Become who it says you can become. Like, do what it says. For if you listen to the word and you don't obey it, you don't know it, you don't understand it, you don't live it, well... It's like glancing at your face in a mirror. I mean, you can see it for a minute, you glance at your face in a mirror, but if you don't do what it says, it's meant to be the reflection. It's meant to be what you see. If you don't do what it says, but, but you see yourself, you walk away, you forget what you look like, you forget who you're really supposed to be, who you forget what he says about you because you're just glancing. It's just temporary. It's just a part of the pie instead of the pie. But if you look carefully into the perfect law and that perfect law fulfilled by who Jesus is, it will set you free. And if you do what it says and you don't forget what you heard, God's gonna bless you. I want the blessings of God. Then look deeply into the scripture and remember who you are and who he says you are because you are who God says you are, everybody. So look at this. Let me, sh- let me give you an example now. Here are the shame, shame triggers. Unwanted exclusion, exposure, expectation, and unreturned love. And look how when we look into the scripture, not only from Genesis to Revelation, but also from Jesus, the embodiment of that law. Look look what it says. Matthew 3. Jesus is now 30 years old. He goes into ministry. Here's what happens. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. Listen to the the immediacy. Listen to the uh, speed of this. As soon as Jesus was baptized, this is a moment where he is basically symbolizing the past is now. I'm moving into a new moment. I'm being baptized in the Jordan River, which was actually the, um, the barrier between where the Israelites were in the Old Testament and where they were supposed to go to the promised land. They got up to the bank of the Jordan and they didn't want to go because they were too afraid. So they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness until they actually did it. Well, Jesus in that same river is baptized. He goes and not for 40 years, but 40 days. There's a representation here. There's a shadow here where Jesus goes into the wilderness and instead of wandering, he's fasting, he's praying, he's focused, and he actually is perfecting what the Israelites couldn't perfect. He's going and trusting the wilderness moment because the Israelites, they couldn't trust. In their 40 years of wandering, Jesus did it in 40 days and he did it perfect, but you couldn't, he did. And here's what happens. In this moment where Jesus is getting ready to go 40 days, no food, there into the wilderness, gonna be tempted by the enemy, what happens the moment he is baptized? At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, A voice from heaven said, now listen, if you're about to go into ministry and you're saying, I feel called and you got brothers and sisters, the Bible even says that his own family like didn't believe he was who he said he was at times. When your own family is going, Jesus, you ought to keep that whole Messiah thing to yourself, buddy. Like you're just a bro. A voice from heaven says, 
What, what does this mean? All of a sudden, he has not unwanted exposure, but the kind of exposure he's gonna need that is proving to everybody around him who he says he is, that's who he is, a voice from heaven, not just a voice of his mama, a voice from heaven, exposing him for who he really is, but it's the kind of exposure he's gonna need. Scripture goes on. This is my son. God says, this is my, this is my son. What is he saying? <laughs> totally included. Not excluded, he's totally included. This is my boy. Huh? It's my son, whom I love. <laughs> There's no need to even earn my love. I love him. I'm gonna give him everything he needs, not only from the flesh side, I'm giving him everything because he's my son. He's the son. He's triune Godhead, but he's also in the flesh right now. And with him, I am well pleased. Before he turned water into wine, before he raised the dead, before he, before he went to the cross, before he did anything really significant, he met my expectations. I'm pleased with him. This is what God has wanted from the beginning. Do you know that Jesus is considered the second Adam? He comes and he makes all things right that we couldn't make on our own. Because the first Adam failed at all those. And here's how the scripture goes in Genesis. The Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees, how many kinds? Come on, come on, Nat. Come on, Lufkin. How many kinds? Yeah, lots. Lots. Lots of them, they're trees. That's what the East Texas version reads. Do you know that there are over 52,000 species of trees? Do you know there are over 7,500 varieties of apples? We don't even know if the, if the fruit was an apple, but there are 7,500 varieties today of apples. Made all kinds of trees, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. It's good stuff. These weren't cacti. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, now let's think about this. 52,000 species. So you've got access to 51,998 trees. But there are two. <laughs> no. They were these two. The Lord God commanded the man, look, you are free. Everybody say it, all locations, say those three words. You are free. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you'll certainly die. Scripture goes on to say that Adam and his wife, they were both naked and they felt no shame. Could have felt, they felt no pain, they felt no hurry, they felt no guilt. There's something powerful about this shame. They were naked and they felt no shame. Have you ever been there? That you were naked and you felt no shame? Yeah, I, 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 I've been there, you've been there, I'll prove it. Very carefully placed arm there. <laughs> Trust me, this is my mom taking a Polaroid picture of me three years old in Lincoln, Nebraska. I'm just playing in the bathtub. Guess what? I don't feel. 
any shame. Now, if I were sitting in my bathtub today and my 62-year-old mom walked in with a camera and took a picture, this probably wouldn't be the face and this probably wouldn't be the posture that a 43-year-old son would have with his mama taking a picture in the bathroom. Why? Because I've grown up and I've experienced some stuff. But there is such an innocence. I mean, you get out of the shower, you're just running around naked. It don't matter who's over. Kids, oh, get that grandkid. Get that kid. Oh, it's, it's funny. <laughs> but if I'm 43 and I'm running through the house, Janet's having a bridal shower for a friend. She barely wanted me to be out yesterday fully clothed. Let alone, as we would say in East Texas, naked. And I felt no shame. But as you grow older, there's a, there's a loss of vulnerability. There's a loss of innocence. And you start packing up and you want to hide those things that you could be so free. And I want you to know that this is just a silly kid picture. But it's his plan from the beginning as sons and daughters to be able to stand in front of Jesus no matter what we've gone through, no matter what we've done and not be embarrassed, but be vulnerable. Next week, we'll talk about some of the games we play with shame and blame and fame and how do you win those games? How do you win the fame game, the blame game and the shame game? We'll talk about that. As we wrap up today, look at this continued story now. They were naked and they felt no shame. They were as happy as a three-year-old Jeremy in Lincoln, Nebraska bathtub. But the serpent said to the woman, hey, did God really say you must not eat? Notice how he, he totally pushes past the three first words that God really said, you are free. But the enemy always wants to focus on what you can't do, what you can't have, what you can't be. You can't, you must not, you don't deserve, you'll never, you must not. You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Here's what's crazy about Eve, she goes, no, 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 we can eat from all the trees, but you, we can't touch, we, we can't eat from that fruit, and she adds something, and we can't even touch it, or we'll die. God never said don't touch it, but she adds that. Why does she add that? Because we love to add to God's word. We love to add religion. We love to add certain practices, certain things that we think, well, don't even touch it. And all of a sudden, the don't touch it becomes God's word versus that's just been a guardrail that we've done. Well, don't you dare go to that movie house. Watch that movie. You might as well just be going, you know, don't paint the stage black. You might as well, might as well be in a nightclub in the church. It's crazy. Had a, had a gentleman one day say to me, like, it, well, it was just like coming to a nightclub. I said, it's been a while since you've been to a nightclub, I can assure you. Because if you think coming to a Sunday morning at Timber Creek is like going to a nightclub, you were you going to a very tame nightclub. I mean, uh, you know, there was not a whole bunch, like there's a whole lot of things missing, okay? All right. Oh, yes, yes, there is lights and there is a dark stage. Okay, I get that. There's a similar, we're a lot different in a whole lot of things, like the whole... <laughs> and all the moves I could do for you right now that I won't. <laughs> because I not only don't want to embarrass myself, but I don't want to shame myself. Okay. So, go on. 
Oh, no, no, back up, I'm sorry. You'll not certainly die. What? You're not gonna miss out. You're not gonna be excluded. You don't wanna be excluded, do you? Because you'll be excluded if you don't do this. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. He's trying to exclude you. Hmm? Knowing good and evil, like why, who, who gives him the right to be God and you not God? And this has been our problem ever since the beginning. God's design is for us to be vulnerable, naked in front of him. And it's the enemy's design to want to get you to hide everything you possibly can or just try to usurp his authority and be God instead of letting him be God. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, like the other 51,998 trees, it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Like she didn't want to be excluded and she, she didn't want to, you know, like not have something. Well, she ate it. And then she also gave some to her husband, which I love this little caveat, who was with her and he ate it. Like we give Eve all this bad rap. Like he's just sitting there. I don't know. It does look good. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? Like he's with her. She's like, this is good, Adam. You ought to try. He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked. Uh-oh. Exposure. Uh-oh. Man. Self-awareness. It's this, all, it's this self-awareness and all of this all about me. I wasn't even thinking about me being naked. I wasn't even thinking about you being naked. We were just vulnerable, innocent in front of God. And now all I can think about is me being naked. And all I think about is you being naked. They, they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. They were embarrassed. They felt shame. Now then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Does God know where they are? I love how he asks questions that you're meant to answer, but he already knows the answer. Because he wants you to oper- he wants you to think this through. Adam answered, well, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. Why was he afraid? Because he was worried about unreturned love. That now, because I didn't meet the expectations of God, because now I've been exposed, because all I wanted was just to be included in everything else, because I have missed the mark, God's not gonna love me anymore, so we better cover everything up, and we better live the rest of our lives on the run, trying to hide from God, and some of you have been on that run for 58 years. But as we wrap up today, I want to give you new rules for the shame game. Let me just tell you right now, it's not that you'll ever live a life completely free of shame. Shame will sneak up. Shame will be there. Shame isn't a sin. It usually is the result of sin, or it's, it can become something that creates sin. So that I am not enough, my shame drives me to force that I am enough and I might cheat or steal or beg or borrow or break my vows in order to feel like I'm enough. Here's the new rules for the shame game. They were playing it. They were playing it. Here's the new game. Adam and Eve were playing the game hide and seek. Anybody ever played hide and seek with their kids or you just play hide and seek? That's what Adam and Eve were doing, playing hide and seek. 
But here's the new rules for the new shame game. It's this, it's seek and hide. It's seek and hide. Instead of responding to that moment of failure and hiding as God sought them, I want you to know that you can go out and seek God. He's not hiding from you. You can go seek God. You don't have to hide. And when you seek him, you don't have to hide from him. The Bible says that like a little sheep, he will hide you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with his hand. That I don't have to hide from what he'll do with my shame. I bring him my shame and he will hide me. Oh, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. I run to it, not to, I don't have to run away from it. And I'm safe. Go ahead, Mandy. So here are some questions that I'm inviting you to ask today. Who am I really? Because you, you, you are who you think they think you are, but you aren't all that. Who are you really? Where do you go? Scripture is the script cure. The script says, I'm a mistake. I'm a mistake. I was an accident. You're my workmanship. I formed you, I knitted you in your mother's womb. Even before your mama knew you, I knew you. Oh, I don't know, God, I'm unworthy. Oh, unworthy, well, actually, I thought you were so worthy that you were worth the cross. That while you were still a sinner, while you still had your vulnerability, while you still had your places where you fell short of the glory of God, I'm gonna pay the ultimate price for you. You're worthy of the cross. I'm unlovable. Why can't I get it right? You don't have to get it right. You're my beloved. No matter what you do, I can't love you anymore. I can't love you any less. I just love you. Oh, I'm an accident. Are you kidding me? You're fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm insignificant. I'm insignificant. You're the apple of his eye. What does that even mean? <laughs> it means he protects you. Scripture says in Zechariah 2, Anyone who harms you harms my most precious possession. It doesn't mean that you're always free from harm. It doesn't mean that some of you haven't gone or will go through hell on earth. But he loves you and you're not forgotten and he'll be with you no matter what you go through. Who, who, who am I? David says in 2 Samuel, God, who am I that you would, that you would choose me? Who am I? Get alone this week and say, God, I want to listen. I don't want to just tell you. I just want to listen. Who, who do you say I am? Who am I? But here's another question. In order for you to truly do that, you've also got to ask God, who are you really, God? Because Adam and Eve thought God was going to just like lose his junk. They did not know really who God was. Had they known who their real father was, they wouldn't have run away from God. They would have ran to God. What do we do? Will you help us? It's broken. Who are you really? He's a God that loves you. And he's a God that loves you so much he doesn't want you to stay where you are. But he gives you moments like this to come face to face with some stuff and deal with it and 
invite Jesus to do what only he can do in your heart? Will, will, will I name my shame? This is an important thing for this week. As we get into next week, can you name your shame? Is there anything that, that is a script or a name? In that, I didn't have time to go through it, so I'll just say it fast. One of the first responsibilities God gives to Adam is to name stuff. Name the animals. He gives them this creative ability to name stuff. And I wonder how much of us can name all the sports teams and you can name all of the stuff you've done wrong and you can name all of the things you're going to do. You can name a whole lot of stuff. You love to name stuff. But when it comes to things that might hold you back or the script that is a lie from the pit of hell that you are living unbeknownst to you, it's, you haven't named it. You haven't named it. Give it a name. I, I'm short, but I feel insignificant. I'm, I am insignificant, and I cannot let that drive me. I cannot let that be the... I cannot get my identity from what I feel like I'm not good enough for, what I have too much of or not enough of. Will I have to hide? If I name my shame, will I have to hide from God? Will you have to hide? No. Come to me, all who are burdened, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest from carrying that weight. Will he still love me? Will he still love me? Just like Jesus, he hadn't performed a single miracle. He'll love you. You go to him for forgiveness, but you know what? As far as naming your shame and like that whole thing, this is not just for him. This is for other people. I want you to know there are people in your life if you'll confess your sin to them, it may hurt them. It may take a while to understand it. But sin just grows in the darkness. When you hide it, it builds something big. When you confess it, it may hurt, especially the ones you love. But I want you to know there's something powerful. Healing comes when you name it, when you confess that. Confess your sins one another that you may be healed. God forgives us, but we find healing in community. Will he take my shame? I mean, what are we gonna do with all this shame? And as we wrap up today, Hebrews 12, the author, gives us a very popular scripture. Here's how it reads. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we're surrounded by people, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Like trying to run a 400 meter dash with your shoestrings tied together. Let's not live that way. That's what living in shame is like. You're trying to run and you can't run. You're stumbling all over yourself. Let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for who? You don't have to run the race of Bobby or the run the race of Jimmy or run the race of Susie. You just run the race marked out for you. God has what you need to run your race. He goes on to say, and where do we fix our eyes? Do we fix our eyes on what we don't have? Do we fix our eyes to the fruit that we can't, that, that, or of what we can't have or what God has given us? Where do we fix our eyes? We fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, in other words, this enduring hope, this, this assurance that no matter what kind of rain comes, I won't be sunk. 
No matter no, no matter what storm comes, I can stay afloat. I can stay buoyant for the joy set before him. Here's what he did. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. I'm a little three-year-old in a, in a bathtub. Jesus is a 33-year-old, naked, on a cross, in front of everybody. It was a shameful thing to be crucified. It was a mockery. <laughs> Here's the king of the Jews, everybody, written in three different languages on a thoroughfare. If Jesus were crucified today, it would be like he would be crucified in the middle of a Walmart parking lot. It was that busy, that crowded, and he is hung naked on a cross. But I, I love what the author says, scorning the shame, not eliminating it, not, not, not experiencing it. If I, could give, if I could give scorning a sound, you know what that sound would be like? You know what that sound, if I could give the word scorn a sound, it'd be this. Because he knew who he was and what he was called to do. And even though he could have been shamed, he scorned, he held it in contempt. Shame, you, I'm gonna take you on. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I, I'm gonna hold you in my teeth, shame. And I'm gonna pay for it. So my people, so my children don't have to wear it anymore. He scorned it. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yeah, I was naked. Yeah, I was in front of everybody. Yeah, I was crucified in the middle of common criminals. I did all that so you don't have to. You don't have to live that way if you don't want to. But the antidote is not biting your bottom lip and it is not another self-help book. It is not just naming it. It's going to the name above all names. It's going to the one who wore your shame so you don't have to. He's the antidote. He's the answer. He's the word that becomes flesh. Before you could ever earn it, he did it. Embrace it. Embrace it. That's my prayer for you. As we get to the 60 last days of 2022, that you would name your shame and live free from it because Jesus designed you to live that way. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes at all of our locations? He sees you and he loves you. And this is not doing business with your pastor. This is doing business with God. And I know that talking about things like this, it stirs up a lot of things in a lot of people. I can tell you that if you're struggling with pride, it could be that you, you, you think, I don't have any shame. Just be careful, we all have to deal with it. So it may be that your prayer is not about just naming your shame, it may be, God, will you humble me? and reveal areas where I might be living the wrong soundtrack. I might be living a lie or responding to a lie. Some of you are living like you don't deserve what Jesus has done. Or you've just been living like you can just do it all on your own, but today you're recognizing I need him. I need Jesus, the antidote, my savior, my Lord, I need him. 
And if that's you for the first time or maybe a fresh time, you'd say, I need to surrender to Jesus and let him do a work from the inside out in my life. If that's you, with no hesitation, right where you are, I'm not gonna embarrass you, but in just a moment, I'm gonna ask you just to raise your hand. And when you raise your hand, you're, you're not acknowledging something just to a pastor. It's like a spiritual moment, I believe. A symbolic moment where you're not just raising a hand to answer a question, you're raising a hand to reach out to Jesus as he has already reached his hand out to you. That's what you're doing when you raise a hand. So if you need to raise a hand to Jesus who will grab your hand and will take you and will wash your sin away and carry your shame, if that's you, right where you are, would you just put a hand up and then you can put it down? Yeah, yeah. All of our locations, you can put them down. Jesus, thank you for loving us so much that you give me this moment, make things right with you. You'd pray, I'm a sinner, I need, I need your help, I, I need your saving grace. Sin separates me from you and I don't wanna be separated from you and I'm dealing with a lot of this stuff. Will you, will you be my God and my Lord? Thank you for not being mad at me, but for giving me this moment to make things right with you. As we continue to pray, your hand would be raised again, but maybe it's just, yeah, there's a trigger or there's a script that I've been living. There's something that's been triggering that shame. There's, there's a script that I've been living and I just, one more time, or maybe for the first time, or maybe for the 50th, I've got to hand this over to Jesus today. I've got to fix my eyes on Jesus today. If that's you, would you just put a hand up and I want to pray for you too? Yeah, many hands in this room. I know there's hands in Nacogdoches. They're in Iglesia and, and Duncan and Dieball. Jesus, thank you that you scorned the shame of the cross. You took all that we could experience. You gave, you gave your life for it. So Lord, I pray for every man and woman, every uh, senior saint and every baby Christian, for those that are in college and those that are in retirement, I pray that we would know, truly, truly know just how deeply we are loved by you and that we would be wrapped and clothed in your rightness. And we would stop playing that shame game. We ask it in the name of Jesus, the strong son of God. And everybody said a good amen.